Welcome to an original series, the podcast celebrating our favorite TV shows behind the paywall. I'm Patch, one of your co-hosts, and with me celebrating the world of long-form storytelling is not Adam Rakoff. It is filling in for the next nine episodes of this particular series we are covering is my best friend and feeling film co-host, Aaron White. What's up, my friend? Man, this feels so weird to be in this chair. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I don't know if I can actually fill Adam's shoes. Adam is incredible at this, so I'm going to do my best, but I appreciate you bringing me in from the bench. I'll, t- I'll try to hit a single or a double for you at least. Well, it was not without its own intent. I mean, I had a little bit of uh, <laughs> a nefarious purpose behind this. So we are going to be covering the first season of The Last of Us, the HBO series that uh, debuted back, I believe, in January of 2023. And we were thinking about the show, Adam and I were. I convinced him to watch it. He loved it. Before we started watching it, we had this conversation. So one of the reasons that Adam is not here is that currently, as we're recording this, he is in the process of moving from his apartment life in New York up north even further (laughs) into a house and he thought it would be and i agreed that it would be a good opportunity for him to take a break focus strictly on that and so i reached out to my buddy aaron here and said listen it's the last of us it's a good conversation worth having would you mind joining me and he's like mind what i'll just take over the show if you want just no he didn't say that but i thought it would be just a it's a great opportunity for the two of us to talk through this i mean we've in full disclosure, we have seen the first season, but much like the shows that we've covered so far on AOS, we are isolating our conversation strictly to the episode that we'll be talking about. So we'll do our best not to spoil anything moving forward. We will, however, be talking a lot about game comparison because that's definitely going to be a conversation that comes up. So if you'd like to get an in-depth like review conversation about the game, Aaron, I know that you have a conversation between the two of us on your show, The Games We Love, that we can link in the show notes. You can get a full-on gushing about our love for the game. But if people don't want to do that, or if they just want to keep listening to this conversation, why don't you tell us a little bit about your history with The Last of Us as a property? Back in 2010, I survived a zombie apocalypse, so it's very close to my own heart uh, because (laughs) I feel like I can relate. No, I I have played the games since they existed right when they came out every single time. This is probably my most replayed game series of all time as well, and so I have just really connected to the narrative of these stories. The characters to me are so incredibly well-written and the relationships are just super moving and super raw and super real. And I think that there is something that is interesting and kind of sets this particular world apart from other zombie storytelling where it's either about the monsters or we often get the it's not about the monsters humans are the real monsters and of course that plays into this plenty as well 
but I just think it's expertly told. I think there's a ton of good content out there about zombies, but the characters set this apart. The characters in this world and the different situations that they all face. And and personally, I just love a good moral dilemma. I love a good ethical dilemma and being put between a rock and a hard place and seeing how people come out of it by making choices and you can't really necessarily judge them for them because whether they're wrong or they're right, they just had to make a choice and you just got to live with the consequences. I love that kind of stuff. So yeah, for me, this is, I think I told you when we watched through the whole season, this is my second favorite IP of all time. I would put Lord of the Rings as number one and I would put the world of The Last of Us that encompasses the TV show and the two video games so far as my number two. Well, I was glad that that was the case because you introduced this this to me, I think, in 2016. I can't quite remember, along with Uncharted. So you were essentially like force feeding me the desire to love the games that you did. And and for the (laughs) most part, you haven't disappointed. Look, I'll admit that when it comes to movie recommendations, we've known each other for a long time that when you say as many movies as you get a chance to watch, you'll say, this is one that I want us to cover. This is one you should at least watch. I think the same thing applies for video games because I consider myself a casual gamer. I'm not one who gets to dedicate a lot of time, but there are games like the last of us stories that it encompasses that keep me just sitting in for a session longer than just 30 minutes to an hour. And I have to dedicate that time. I have to say, okay, I'm staying up a little bit later. I'm going to dive in, put my headphones on and get scared out of my mind with all the jump scares and clickers and all that stuff that we'll get into as the show goes on. But I think for me, one of the things that I was a little excited about and apprehensive was how do you adapt a watchable story from a video game? I mean, we we've seen this happen so many times in movies where you get a video game and you attempt to adapt it and get the spirit of the game intact. And just like with books, I think there's an audience that says, no, that wasn't pure enough, or wow, I can't believe you changed this. Walking away from this first season of The Last of Us, I think it's probably the closest adaptation to the original story. Like if you watch the first season of The Last of Us, you've essentially experienced the game. Not just like, oh yeah, that happened in the game, I remember that, but also just everything about the love of these characters of Joel and Ellie and Tess, just all the people that we meet for the most part are pretty much authentic to their video game counterparts. Now there are some deviations and there's a companion podcast that released with this from HBO called the (laughs) HBO's the last of us podcast aptly named. I have actually not listened to it. I intentionally wanted to wait until we started covering this. I did this for Chernobyl as well, where after we talk about it, I'm going to listen to each episode. That way, my thoughts are my thoughts, and they're not (laughs) Craig Mazin's. I'm not saying you cannot say anything about what's on the podcast. I just don't want to- I'll try to limit it. (laughs) I I couldn't help it, man. I I was like consuming everything. No, 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 that's fine. No, I'm not going to edit anybody. And if stuff comes up, great. I just don't want this to be a repeat of that podcast. It's good content. Uh, If it's anything like the Chernobyl podcast, it's definitely worth listening to. So- This is our conversation, and if stuff comes up, fantastic, because I love a good organic conversation. So let's go ahead and get into it. We are in the very first episode entitled, When You're Lost in the Darkness. 
and of course we find out that this is a reference to the Fireflies from this episode, we start with this cold open. This was immediately a surprise to me. It's 1968, there's a conversation about the possibility of a pandemic, and specifically the potential for a fungus, uh, essentially setting us up for what the infection is going to originate from. Now, as someone who mentioned the idea that The Last of Us was not necessarily about the thing, it was surprising to me to get this sort of like, oh, there's talk about the thing, <laughs> you know, where we're so used to like, what about Joel? What about Ellie? And I think that there's something nice about this because it allows us to not just dive right into characters, but get into a little bit of a comfortable zone because that's always going to be a question mark when it comes to a zombie apocalypse of some kind. The, the, the Walking Dead, I think, fixed itself on this concept that Kirkman never said what caused the outbreak because his focus was on the aftermath. But I think the game and this first episode really center on there has to be a beginning before there's a middle and an end. And I thought this was a really great way to orient us as an audience to the show, even though it was a definite change from the game. But I thought that was one of the positive changes that they adapted for this episode. Yeah, I would agree. And I think, you know, a lot of the changes that we'll talk about from game to show, of course, are because of the different mediums of storytelling, game being interactive, everything you do in the game outside of a single cutscene, right? Which you have to limit how much of that you're going to use. Everything is interactive and, and stuff. And so do you really want to start a video game with a cutscene of this? No, it's really probably not the way you want to drop into a game that you're going to play. But I, and which I like this being different. And I remember when I saw this, I just was immediately compelled by it and and fascinated because it was new and I think that was good to start with something that anybody who played the game had never seen before what I really liked about this was just as you said like how we set up the world for what's to come it has not happened yet especially the part where they talk about how climate change could be the reason that the fungus could evolve so they're discussing it and it's got a perfect little tinge of humor to it I love the host <laughs> and his his funny little remarks. He's great. You know, yeah. as he's like kicking back to the two uh, scientists. But when the guy says this fungus can't do anything with humans because of body temperature and he says, yeah, but unless something crazy happened like climate change, you never know. And I love that because it makes it relatable to our world today. Not where we should walk outside tomorrow and think, oh gosh, <laughs> I hope today's not the day that cordyceps starts, but in a way that we can understand how it might have come to this and how knowing this could be a problem, people in leadership positions could have just ignored it. Right. The world could have just ignored it and kind of let it happen because we do that a lot. Yeah. So that scene ends and we get to the title card, which is just phenomenal. I really, really like the way that the opening credits. So cool. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's reminiscent a little bit of the, of the video game, but it's sort of an extension <laughs> metaphorically and literally of what's being talked about. We have this like fungal thing growing and like, you know, we're set up essentially visually like, oh my gosh, is this what some of the visual effects are going to be like? And the answer is yes, it is. Okay. So it's, I mean, they don't pull any punches in this first episode. And I love that because it's like, they're saying we're setting the bar here, like, like above my head, <laughs> if you can't see it, and we're not going to get any lower. 
we can't do that because we respect this game. We respect this property so much. I'll go on record in saying that Craig Mazin, I think, is probably the king of downer shows. You know, he was the, the showrunner and writer for Chernobyl, and he's one of the co-writers uh, and showrunner for, for this as well. But yeah, the, the opening credits are fantastic. I, I absolutely love the fact that the composer, I think it was Santoliella, I think is his last name, <laughs> Gustavo. Let's call him Gustavo because we're on first name basis. And that's better. Yeah. I love that he was brought back for this and that the music, while familiar, there are themes that absolutely run through, through this series. There is a uniqueness to this. So he actually was able to broaden <laughs> the themes metaphorically and musically to create a unique show score so i was glad that they they brought him back for that because it wouldn't i don't think it would have been the same without him so after the credits it's 2003 we've jumped several decades it's morning we meet sarah and joel what we think are main characters it's his birthday and the banter between the two is great this is something that we hint at in the game we also meet Tommy and find out that he and Joel are in construction. They're working on some kind of project. So we're getting a lot of cool exposition about their sort of just blue collar life living in Texas. Sarah's showing off her like smarts by spotting off knowledge about Jakarta because she sees something on the news. And then after breakfast, Sarah swipes Joel's watch, some cash, and she spies a, a knife. And at first I'm like, Sarah, why are you stealing Joel's watch. Why are you taking his money? And of course, we find out later why that is. And then we meet some creepy or semi-creepy neighbors who have biscuits ready to to give Joel and Sarah. And it's such a it's such a weird like I know those people are something's going to happen to those people, especially that old lady because she just looks weird. Like she looks like something out of a horror movie already. You know, being fed biscuits uh, by force because she's just catatonic. And I'm just like. What jump scare is she going to be participating in? I'm just trying to prepare myself ahead of time for this. And uh, it's just a, it's such a great way to to set up the relationship that Joel and Sarah have. It's very sarcastic. We know that he's a single dad, obviously, because there's no mention of mom. But I love their relationship here. And it's such a great way to sort of get us integrated into their world. I would agree. I, I love that moment where he looks at the old lady after the, I guess it's her son, I think it's her son that is feeding her. Okay, yeah. And he, she, he's like, "Oh, you know, come get some biscuits. I know you love biscuits." And he's like, mm. "And and when it when they ask that, we get the cut to her face, and it's like oozing out her <laughs> li- lip, like like she couldn't keep it in, like you said. And it's just Joel's like, "I'm good. I'm good. I got I got um, the Atkins just, thing going right now." But I'm on Atkins. What now? It's uh, you know what? We gotta run, but Sarah will be by later. She'll stay as long as you want. Tell you all about Atkins. Great. I'll let Connie know. Solid. <laughs> Throws her right under the bus. <laughs> yes, that was a fantastic and fantastic save uh, yeah. from him as well. Yeah. But yeah, I, I like that a lot, and I and I like the details. Everything comes into play later. Everything has a an importance behind it. The watch in particular, which plays a role in the rest of the season, she picks up the watch and the money and she then makes a comment about the money later on. And and I just love that there's so much of that attention to detail in every scene and here right off the bat. And it was cool getting to see what they did, because I'm pretty sure that in the games, we don't know anything about Joel's profession 
because it, it kicks off a couple scenes from now and <laughs> the game does. We don't really know what they did, but it, like you said, it makes perfect sense that they would work in some sort of construction field, right? It would make him handy with tools and be comfortable with things like that in order to help him survive in the future. After Sarah goes to school with all of her goods, gets on a bus to go to a watch shop, I guess, downtown in order to get Joel's watch repaired. Very sweet. The banter here is nice because he's like, <laughs> at first I thought he was, again, I think we're led to believe that she's selling the watch uh, because he goes, $20. She's like, what? And he goes, okay, $30. She goes, no, 20 And then we realize that she's trying to get it repaired. And he ends up repairing it, but not before this like abrupt entrance by his wife who says, get her out of here. We got to close up shop. And he's like, we don't close until seven. It's 3.30. And she's like, no, we're going. So we get the first hints of like, hey, something is not right in the state of Denmark when it comes to what's happening here. And I don't know if it was here or when she gets home, but there's a there's a an aircraft, a helicopter, a plane that sort of goes overhead that sort of starts giving us a little like, okay, something's afoot. What's it going to be? It apparently just doesn't deter her because she goes home. She goes to the neighbor's house. I think she's talking to the housekeeper or the or the the live in not made, but the order, whatever it is, like the, I don't know, the helper. <laughs> and uh, she's like, we're going to make some cookies, uh, raising cookies. She asks about that ruckus to which the woman says, you know, <laughs> some kind of like evangelical, like. People out there need to get right with Jesus. Three nails plus one cross equals four given. And then we see the the catatonic lady in the background, and this is this is where hor the horror like vibes start coming because she's blurred out. This is a great shot. So you got Sarah in the front, and she's looking at DVDs, and in the back you see this catatonic woman start like, like twitching or like, oh my gosh, what is gonna go? Is she gonna get up and she's gonna attack Sarah? I start getting tingles at this point, like not spidey tingles, like I need to cover my face tingles because I really don't want to have nightmares after this scene. All this stuff leading up is so great. It's just these little nuggets of terror that like something is going to happen. What's it going to be and when's it going to happen? Yeah, I think it's the wife as well. I think this is a husband and a wife and one of their elderly mother is the gotcha. way that gotcha. I think it's framed. Yeah, it's really scary. Uh, the way, because this is a rewatch, I was really locked into how long Sarah was looking at the DVD. So I'm, yeah. <laughs> I know we're supposed to be watching the creepy woman in the background. Yeah. You know, as her face is and going through these motions. But I was so locked in on Sarah. And I was like, this is a long scene. You really are searching this DVD shelf, like hardcore. <laughs> like You feel like you're just reading titles multiple times. But um, you're right. Like, it's such a great way to show the slow progression of obviously what we will learn in very quickly is the fungus taking hold right off the bat. We're seeing it take from it's an early stage into it's like kind of not worst form, but full on takeover form through this one character. And it's multiple escalating, scary, scary moments. Yeah. I think using an old woman like that was just brilliant. I was just going to say, <laughs> yeah, old people that get possessed is probably one of the great like horror images that get used so after that she finds a dvd for joel i guess to kind of put the icing on the cake if you will for his birthday he comes home 
He apparently was supposed to get a cake. This was mentioned earlier. He forgot the cake. She gives him crap about it, but that doesn't stop her from giving him a present, which is his watch. And it's fixed. And I put in my notes for now, because <laughs> as you mentioned, um, we know what's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. This becomes a, a staple for the rest of the, the series and it becomes a, it becomes a, a symbol in the game as well, which is really cool. This is the first instance that I remember a direct callback to the video game. He asks, where'd you get the money for this? Drugs. I sell hardcore drugs. It's better when I do. It was only $20, which I stole from you. Best. <laughs> I was so happy when they did it word for word and she nailed it. She did. She did. Not as country as the Sarah in the game. Cause I remember her going drugs. I say hardcore drugs, but that's fine. You know, yes. it was great. And she's fantastic in this. I want to just say this is something that we'll probably talk about in the next episode. But, you know, you've got characters that show up for one or two episodes. Those performances have to be so good because they have to be memorable. Like this story is about Joel and Ellie, but there are other characters that get introduced along the way. But they're not like this like gang of people that by the end of the story, you have like 15 people. Like it's about Joel and Ellie. And so... Characters come in and characters leave. How they leave, you know, we'll get into that. But the way that Sarah gets introduced, the performance allows us to really start caring about her because of all this stuff that we're getting right up to this point. So this is the first time that we're getting video game footage, essentially, like video game cutscenes. Everything else leading up to that was obviously specific to the show. But I think, as you mentioned earlier, it's so important to have that kind of stuff before because it helps establish in a way where we really do attach ourselves to Joel and Sarah in this uh, in this first part. Were you familiar with who Sarah was as an actress? Just curious. No, I wasn't. Do you know who Thandi Newton is? She's uh, been in some movies. She's in Westworld. She's been in a lot that you might not notice. Um, she is the daughter of Thandi Newton, which you will, when you see her, you will be like, oh my gosh, it's a spitting image. And her dad is Ole Parker, the English director and screenwriter who has done Mamma Mia movies okay. and most recently Ticket to Paradise, which we covered on Feeling Film. Okay. So, yeah. Yeah. So she's got like famous parents as well, but she <laughs> had not really been a prominent actress before this. And so I was just, I was really impressed by her. Yeah. She's what uh, Adam reminded me of uh, is known as a Nepo baby, you know, a... <laughs> yes. technically, yes, technically she would be a Nepo but, baby. But she, she earns this role for sure. Like she's not being thrown in because of who her mom and dad are. So fantastic. Love the, love the performance here. They pop in the DVD. She starts watching it with him. She falls asleep right on cue, much like in the game. This is where Joel's cell phone buzzes. It's Tommy and he's in jail. I noted that he sounds like Tommy from the game, like the voice actor that plays Tommy. Yeah, it's not the same actor, obviously, but um, no. but but I thought that, man, that sounds like Tommy for sure. And I think it's because of the phone and the muffledness that's, that, that I'm so used to hearing in this opening sequence. So Joel puts Sarah to bed and goes to get Tommy. We get shown that it's 11.03, 2.16. Sarah wakes up to all the craziness going on. So this is similar to what happens in the game. There's helicopters, police cars, dogs barking. Then she goes to her neighbor's house. She looks for Mrs. Adler. So this is the old lady's name. That's what we, we finally realized. That's, 
she sees blood on the floor, a wounded husband in the kitchen, and infected Mrs. Adler finishing off his wife. So, (laughs) okay, we're in it. We're in the horror genre officially at this point. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, is she going to attack? What's she going to do? And this is the first instance, Aaron, that I started seeing the great special effects that kind of populate the season with the fungus in her mouth and it sort of starts coming out. And I'm like, this is very different than what one I expected. And two that I've seen in this sort of zombie apocalypse type genre. And I thought it was Mm -hmm. such a great visualization to sort of let us know this is not human. (laughs) What is happening right now and who this person has become. It's awful looking. I mean, it is so gross and so well done from a effects and practical effects standpoint. And I think brilliant because it is showing so well the nature, the natural aspect of this. This is the fungus, right? And that's a change from the video games, by the way, that the way that the cordyceps works, it was not a mushroom based kind of hive fungal that's not how it was transmitted. It was spores. And they they changed some things here because how do you make a show where everybody wears gas masks all the time? That would not work because you couldn't see their faces. And right. so they needed some way to have that not be the way it's transmitted. And so this is the way. And it makes sense because it's like it's like roots going from a tree to like infect something else and take it over. And I just the visualization of it is so good. And I remember thinking to myself the whole time that this goes on, just like flash forward second further on when Sarah walks outside and everything's going chaotic and the dog runs off. And I was like, I am worried about Mercy the dog. Okay. She runs away from Sarah (laughs) in the middle of the night after escaping her zombie family, the Adlers. And she just runs off down the street. And I was like, I really hope that Mercy made it. That was my big takeaway actually from this whole episode. (laughs) It's a good takeaway. I thought that same thing. I was like, please don't show dogs being killed. And if you do show them running away, just assume that they live. Okay. Like it's the, fine if grandma dies, yeah, but gra- not the dog. Okay. Grandma, grandma, grandma <laughs> it's deserved too far. It. The, Mercy did not. That's why Mercy is her, is the dog's name. I mean, come on. That's probably intentional too. Person. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but grandma, she needs to bite it. Cause you know, she's gross. At this point, Joel pulls up in the truck and rushes her into it, but not before Mrs. Adler makes one final appearance by coming out and like on the all fours and then starts running like, like a regular person, like a non old person. (laughs) This is an important scene because Joel kills her without really hesitating. Okay. He has a wrench in his hand. She rushes him and he puts her down and Sarah's reaction is one of shock and horror and almost disbelief that he did it. And I want you to think about that listeners later. We'll come back to this, I think, again in an episode or two. But I, I want to point out that that was important. There was a reason to show her reaction to Joel's killing. And the fact that Joel was able to do it so easily, I think, is important, again, to show that this is a character who is going to be able to potentially survive this. Patrick, I don't think I would. There are so many different situations in this even episode where I would have hesitated and I'd be a zombie like the majority of people in this world. But Joel is different, and he doesn't do that. I agree. And I think what's going to happen is every episode I'm going to point out, this is where I would die. Like, if I made it, this is sort of like a video game. Like, if I I survived (laughs) chapter one, 
then in chapter two, episode two, this is where I would die. So I'm going to try to be conscious enough to point that out because there is a point in this episode where I'm like, yep, I would die there. (laughs) Okay. I like it. Yeah. So they get in the truck and this is much like the video game. The perspective is all over the place. I love the editing. And I was just thinking a little bit about the number of takes that they would have, the number of cameras that they would have to place to get the different angles because in the game this whole conversation about where they need to go and cutting through the field and seeing burning buildings is all from like sarah's third person point of view so listeners if you're not familiar with the game it's a third person narrative so you're always set up i think to the right of the character usually it's well you can switch that you're over the shoulder over the shoulder thank you yeah and in in this particular instance in the game it's that way too but here because it's television or real life and not video games, you have multiple cuts here. It feels like one continuous shot. And I had to go back and watch it again to make sure that that wasn't the case. It's so seamless, the way that they actually put all these things together, giving us more exposition. Like, it's not just the neighborhood. It's not just the state. You see these big, big shots of, like, the roads that are just full of cars that have stopped and it just gives me anxiety because I hate traffic anyway. Traffic with infected is just probably a double dose of like no for me, okay? <laughs> so I'm not excited about what they're about to get themselves into. This is shot almost exactly like the game. I did a thing and I replayed the game and I replayed a chapter or two each week right before the corresponding episode of the show would air. Because I wanted to understand the differences. And this is almost like beat for beat from the point they get in the truck till the point that they get, well, honestly, to the point that the story in Texas ends. I'll say that. It is almost perfectly like the game. Like you said, I I loved when we got into the truck and immediately went into that perspective. And the way that we are looking out of the truck left to right from a character POV instead of like a bird's eye view of the truck itself it really immerses you and it does just like in the game it puts you in the situation and it it heightens that intensity man i was feeling it going through the town i'm like i'm feeling claustrophobic i'm feeling nervous i'm like please don't stop this truck please don't stop this truck (laughs) because we're just run over everybody please yeah i think for me especially it's the sequence when they move into downtown and the explosion like all that felt very very much like shot for shot the scenes in the truck, I think, captured the spirit of it because obviously it's still from her over the shoulder perspective. But you're right, looking around and seeing things and like isolating what's happening outside. I agree. I think it's great to stay inside the truck because of the fact that you're with these people. And that's been what's set up for the first like 20 minutes of the show is these are the people that you need to care about. And in particular, Joel, because we start following his journey after what takes place here in a few minutes. After the the thing explodes, after the truck explodes, they get out. Tommy says, head for the river. He'll find another way. I guess he can't get to them. Oh, this was so cool. I, I didn't notice this the first time. But the way that Joel, obviously, he picks Sarah up and he says, keep your eyes on me and don't look around. Like he's protecting her innocence at this point, not just like protecting her from like craziness that's going on. But I love how deep, just these little moments, you see how deeply he cares for his daughter. And it's so, so precious. Yeah, I I think, again, character development is what is so good about a show like this. It's taking the time and putting in the effort to give you this version of a character 
so that you will understand him better when his situation changes down the road. It's also just human. I mean, like you and I are both fathers. I mean, and I have a little girl. So believe me, either one, my daughter or my son, I I would be wanting to shield them from any and all horror I could, even knowing it's a losing effort. It it is really beautiful and, and pretty harrowing. Yeah. Before they take off or what leads them to start being chased is this moment that I thought was chilling. Joel looks out at this like crowd of dead bodies and then this infected dude just like pops up like with all this energy and started chasing them. And I thought, oh my gosh, thank you for being a stuntman and not CGI. AI could not do that. That creepiness of him just like popping up and then boom, after them. Like that's the way I felt as I was holding Sarah running third person following Tommy in the game, I didn't want to look behind me. And yet we get the, behind the perspective when when he's running through, I think it's the the cafe and the, the dude is just like pummeling through and chasing after him. It's not until the, I guess the soldier guy, the military guy pops him that I'm like, oh. but then we think, yeah, it's almost oh, like, <laughs> is it, is it a good thing? I don't it, know. Is it a good thing? He is shot. Then we have the showdown with, Joel and Sarah, he's holding her, the light's being shined on him, the soldier's talking, and you and I know what's coming. We know what's coming. This is just it. And I had a question. Knowing this was going to happen from the gameplay, what were you feeling in this moment? I was, I think, so invested in the way that they had set everything up and given me TV show Joel and TV show Sarah that I had transitioned from what I expected to be feeling, which was more of a technical watch where I was looking to see if they could pull off the same effectiveness of it and if it would look the same to instead I was emotionally invested, you know, knowing even what's going to happen. I wasn't thinking ahead beat for beat. I I was really just feeling it along with the characters and it was devastating yeah. For me, all over, even though it is exactly the same, nothing is different. Mm-hmm. It goes down the same way. The guards' words have always gotten me when mm-hmm. Joel's like, no, wait, hold on, we're not affected. And then the guard gets on the radio and you hear him responding to someone. I'm sorry, repeat. Hey, no one told you to move. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. He shoots, right? And it, and right before he actually goes to deliver a kill shot, he stands over them and the guard says, I'm sorry, before Tommy intervenes. And, it, and it's just, it's moments like that that set this whole world and show apart for me, Patrick, because that guy is following orders. That guy, someone above him is saying, There is an infected outbreak in this city. It is spreading and it is going to consume the surrounding areas. It is going to totally take over the world. And our only job is to contain it. And innocents will have to die in order for that to happen. I can put myself in that guy's position and be like, you're absolutely right. That is the right call. You have to do that. It's the greater good. But I can also put myself in the role of the father and say, I screw your greater good. This is my daughter. 
And thus, yeah. the whole theme of this entire show as it progresses is yeah. right there in a nutshell. It's beautiful, du- beautiful storytelling. Yes. Yeah, the duplicitousness of that, this sort of, I won't call it questionable morality, but this complexity to what is good, what is a good choice. Like earlier in the episode, Joel and Tommy and Sarah, they're driving, and you have this family of three on the road. And Tommy looks at Joel and says, they've got kids. He's like, so do we. It's like, let's go. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So you have these two moments that you're like, okay, is Joel really the good one here? And I think that the the complexity of that, as it gets explored throughout this first season, is so on point with the game because it causes you to question in a, I think, in a maturing kind of way. And so moving forward from that, it's such a great kind of way to sort of transition. And so I want to stop here for just a second. This is where the prologue ends in the game. I thought before the first episode released that this was going to be the first episode. Like, oh man, what a great... We all did. Yeah. What <laughs> I think a great everybody did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I'm watching the Seek Bar. You know, I'm like pausing it to the first time. I'm like, wait, there's like 40... There's like 50 more... Are they going to... Is this going to be episode chapter one? This is going to be good. And sure enough, it is. So were you surprised at that? And did you like the fact that we dove right into like 20 years later with Joel? I was very shocked. Very, very, very shocked. By the time it ended, yes, I was glad. And this is one bit I will share from that companion podcast that I thought was really important. This was brought up and Neil and Craig are talking about it. And they said, listen, we have just gone through an incredibly hard episode and one of the worst moments you're ever going to experience. And they said, we couldn't put the audience through that and leave them in that hopeless moment for a week. We just did not feel good about it. And th- that was the decision-making was behind it. And it was like, we needed to give them Ellie and introduce hope into this world before we broke for the week following, because it will always be a balance of hope versus the struggle to maintain it. But at the end of this, you would have just left thinking it was all over. Where could it go from here? Especially once he said that, it made perfect sense. And I thought it was really, really smart storytelling to do the jump. It worked well. It did. Yeah. And I think it was nice to be able to, like, I wasn't personally at a place where I was like, man, I'm ready to see what happens next because I knew it was going to happen next. So I could wait a week, but I wasn't disappointed that we got like the next part. So, but if you, if you hadn't thinking about that, like I, I knew people who had not played the game who were watching this and I was talking to them about their reactions to it. And I just can't even fathom because when you're in a video game, you have that moment, Patrick, and the game immediately moves on. You know, you you sit with that for seconds, a minute or two, maybe a week. Like to sit with that for a week is is not not nice. It's very mean. And so I think that for that reason, you know, like you said, for us, we knew it was coming. But people who were new to this had no clue. Right. Yeah. So smart move. Good job, Craig and company. So we do move. 20 years later, so another couple of decade jump, this scene opens up with something that was kind of different, the strange kids walking through an old overgrown neighborhood and comes up to Boston 2023. Love the font, very much the Last of Us font, that blocky font. It's so great. We get a lot of this in the season, amazing set pieces showing the aftermath of cities as we go through this this first season it's beautiful and i say that very artistically obviously it's not beautiful but the accuracy 
that they show towards the cities that they visit as they appear in the game is so fantastic. The spirit of the destruction is so on point. Boston is basically set up as his lockdown zone, and the kid shows up, he gets wheeled in and looks at a couple of signs that give us some exposition. I actually paused and saw this as cordyceps virus, full infection timeline. Uh, we get introduced to Fedra, the people apparently in charge. The symptoms, coughing, slurred speech, muscle spasms, mood change. This is basically when I haven't had dinner, I have the same symptoms. So maybe it's like <laughs> dinner steps at this point for me. But um, he's getting interrogated and he gets stuck with something like this little like monitor thing. And then the Fedra agent shows this red light on the display. And I'm like, what's going on here? I got to be honest with you, Aaron. I didn't pick up on this the first time I watched. So what I saw in this last viewing for the podcast, ah, it broke me. It absolutely broke me because I was so focused on what's Joel doing? What's Joel doing? I didn't realize that what we get is that red means bad, which is duh, I know, but I didn't realize that I thought it meant negative. Like, oh, he didn't have the, the virus. No, he's got the virus. And it made so much more of an impact the way that that police lady, that whatever mm-hmm. the soldier was like, what if I told you that after we gave you some medicine, we're going to find you your favorite food to eat? Would you like that? And then we'll get you some new clothes and toys, as many as you want to play with. It's just a little needle. You're safe. Oh, it made me so mad to experience that because I'm like, you you guys are terrible. Like, Fedra's awful. And that's exactly what they're supposed to make you feel like. Yeah, I thought this was a really good way of showing that, especially using a kid, which, like, we just watched them kill a kid, somebody kill a kid, you know, over them thinking they were infected. And here we're starting right back up with somebody being essentially killed because they were infected in the game. You walk by some people on the street and this whole sequence happens where they're getting zapped by the machine to see if they're infected or not and executed on the side of the street if they are. Um, but it's not kid. And this is like much, it's much more personal because you're in there, you're in that moment with the kid very, very close up. And it also introduces you to the fact that in this world, This is how they know they have this device that allows them to tell if you're infected or not, which comes into play later. Yeah. So we're cut to outside in this, uh, I guess this like courtyard area, middle of the street and bodies are being thrown into the burning piles. Joel's working this crew. And this is where we see that the body on the truck is the kid from the previous scene. What's interesting though, is Joel's numbness to it all. Like the lady next to him is like, I can't, I can't. And he's like, whatever, picks him up, throws him into the pile. It's Thursday. Yeah, it's Thursday, you know, just looking for my rations. And (laughs) he gets through a hard day's work at burning children, who apparently are dead. He gets the ration card. So again, more stuff gets introduced. He gets a new assignment for the next day. It's like sewer duties. The establishing shots of all this is really great. We see the Firefly graffiti. We see shops, and they're using the ration cards as currency, so money is no longer a thing, like dollars or American, whatever. I wonder, it makes me makes me wonder, because we, we really don't get, from the game, we don't, we don't get global by any means. So I'm wondering uh, and thinking about, you know, how far did this thing spread? Are ration cards, like, 
international or is it just a, a national thing? So just kind of a, a fleeting thought that I, that I had watching this. And then along with like walks in the streets and whatnot, um, there are a few hangings taking place, as you alluded to, happens in the gang. This is like a typical day in Boston. So there's just numbness all around. Like, this is what's going on. You know, he goes up. Those are fireflies, I think, right? Yeah, yeah, I think they're fireflies. Yeah. So at this point, during that scene, he meets up with a FEDRA agent who trades him ration cards and cigarettes for, I think it's hydrocodone, right? Yeah, Um, some sort of pills. Yeah, hydro as opposed to whatever. Then we get a little bit of backstory about how there's a vehicle waiting for him uh, with a battery, which is a key <laughs> a key component of this episode. He lets him know, you need to stay inside tonight because fireflies are blowing stuff up and stay off the streets. It's going to be crazy. There's going to be a lot of arrests. And that's when we get the title of the episode when Joel looks up at the wall and it says, when you're lost in the darkness, look for the light, which we come to find out is sort of the firefly mantra. So yeah, it's, it's a good mantra. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a great, it's, it's just a really cool scene to kind of get us acclimated to Joel's new world 20 years later in, in Boston. Like this is his, his world. Yep. I agree wholeheartedly. And you get to understand how Joel works between this scene and one slightly further down, how, you know, he trades this codeine for cigarettes and then he trades cigarettes for something else, this is a, a barter system that they live in. It's like prison. It, it really is like prison. Like that's how you get somewhere and you get information is by providing a thing that is hard to get for others, a vice usually of some yeah. kind. Um, yeah. And it really does. It sets up so well just the dour, dark, <laughs> awful way the world <laughs> has fallen and is – sort of trying to maintain some semblance of structure, but it's obviously complicated. <laughs> I'm glad you said structure. And not and easy. No, yeah. And I'm glad you said use structure instead of civility because it's not civil. It's absolutely militant. No. It's absolutely like a jail. I'm, I'm, I'm really glad you used that analogy because that's what it is. It's just bigger. You know, he's got a place to mm-hmm. stay, but there's rarely any power, apparently. He's got a job, but this is not the job this is not like a regular working job. Fedra runs everything. I think that's the big takeaway from this first episode is that Fedra is, they own everything, they run everything, and then the Fireflies are trying to sort of usurp that in, in different ways. And he's just sort of stuck in the middle of it. And that's something that we can definitely find in the game as well. He doesn't care. He doesn't care about the Fireflies. He doesn't care about Fedra. He just cares about surviving. And he can't do that alone. And that's when we get introduced to Tess, played by the amazing Anna Torv. This was a surprise to me because you and I, we fell in love. I don't don't know if you did, but I fell in love with her in Fringe. I thought she was fantastic. (laughs) It made me want to just watch the pilot episode again because she's just, I love her in this. And, And to see her beat up and like just like run down and potty mouth and everywhere, I'm like, man. I mean, apparently life after Fringe just was not good to you. But no, she's great in this as Tess. And I think that she absolutely captures that rundown, that bitterness, that roughness of who we see Tess in the in the video game. Like this is who Tess was. And her introduction, I think, was spot on. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, they they change up some things, you know, it's fine. Just what they're looking for. And there's there's this whole plot line about trying to get guns and I'm glad they cut it. It didn't need to be in there. There was really no 
reason for it too. And, and I think that her performance is fantastic. And I don't remember if this is at the tail end of what you're mentioning or the beginning of the next scene, but there's a specific moment right after we are introduced to her, we see Joel in bed and she crawls in and puts her arm around him and spoons him and just goes to sleep. And it's beautiful to me because this is one of like maybe two scenes. We might get one more. I can't remember. It may not come until flashback conversations later down the road where it comes up. But this is like the only real indication we get that there is a romantic sort of relationship between these two people. It was powerful to me because it showed you that they they got a few minutes of comfort and intimacy while they were sleeping only. And then it's right back to life and trying to survive. And there's just, there's no time for them to have the relationship that they probably would have had if they knew each other outside of these circumstances. Makes it more tragic. Yeah, absolutely. And the show, or at least this episode, in the editing and the way that we get quick cuts all over the place really amplifies the fact that you can't slow down. There's no way of being able to just take a breath, even if you can for a few moments. It's just for that. It's just for a few moments. So she's getting interrogated. There's an explosion, but she's not like they're not lingering on her necessarily like, oh, my gosh, I've got to recover. No, she's coming out. It's Fireflies versus Fedra. She tries to take off. And then we're in the Firefly safe house where we get this quick intro of uh, of Ellie, who does not call herself Ellie at the time. Veronica? It's just, it's, I, I think, think it's, Ver- it's Veronica, I think is what it is. Yeah, Veronica, I think. <laughs> yeah. 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 But that's all we get. We don't get that. We don't get the full intro to her until later. And then we're over to another scene. So all of a sudden, in the course of maybe like six minutes, we are in four different places because there's so much going on, but it's only involving these handful of people. This is a hard thing to do, introducing characters that you're going to be following for for a little bit. How do you make them feel important? And I think the show does a really great job. Joel ends up at what I call the radio shack. <laughs> it's this like room with, with like a guy on the radio and he's getting messages to people. And this is one of the plot points of the, of the episode that sort of spurs him on to do what he does. He's asking about this radio call coming from Tommy via the tower, put that in air quotes. And apparently he's not been communicating with this guy in several weeks, which tells Joel, I got to get out of here. So he's done. He says, where's the tower? Finds out it's in Wyoming. He's like, okay, I got I'm done. This is, I got to find Tommy. You know, for me as someone who, I mean, I know how the game plays out, but for a, a first time viewer, I'm making the connection like, oh yeah, what happened? Tommy was there. He shot the he shot the guy. They lost Sarah. So what happened? And that's an important part of the story, which I think leaves us kind of wanting more. And I thought that was nice. Yeah. Oh, definitely. I mean, you can't not wonder, I would think, why are these two guys separated now? What in the world could have happened after losing your daughter that would make you and your brother go separate ways? Like, why are you not together? And it gives you both a curiosity around that mystery and then also an understanding and relatable way to kind of connect with Joel, understanding that he wants to get out of here to go find his brother. So it's both of those things are true. You're like, yeah, of course he does, because we knew how his relationship was in the past. And so it services both of those goals at the same time, which is really smart. So he takes that information, goes back to his apartment. And there's some really cool things here. I noticed this the first time I remember texting you about this, that we get some kind of nods to the video game. 
uh, as he moves the dresser, there's some dust that comes into focus and it reminds me of the yep. spores. And in particular, anytime the game loads up of the last of us, these little spores are just kind of floating around on screen before whatever chapter you're on loads up. What a great little callback. There's a couple of tools that he pulls out. There's an ax and a crowbar a and a crowbar. That, yeah. <laughs> Very specific. Yes. Yeah. They've not been melee Uh They've not been modified with me. Yeah. They've stuff. not been yeah. modified into like, you can't haven't connected them to a bat yet, but yeah, it's no. coming for a board. <laughs> exactly. And then he pulls out a map and does some researching on how to get to Wyoming. And finally, you know, to top it all off, he drinks some liquor and takes some pills, which is always a great combo, and then just completely passes out. So I'm like, okay, I guess the episode's done. Joel's dead, and there goes the series, because he just overdoses with that. No, he doesn't do that, because his metabolism has been immunized by the cordyceps, and he can take all kinds of all kinds of punishment, including liquor and pills. So there you go. That must be where Tess comes in at night, I think. Yeah. Yeah, so she comes in, she rolls over, they do some spooning, and then he wakes up later that day. Uh, she's making some wake-up drink. I don't think it's coffee, but uh, but it's you something. Don't? I mean, maybe. I don't know. It's <laughs> yeah, it's Fedra, Fedra juice or something. But um, yeah, I don't, I don't know who knows what that is. <laughs> she looks just, rough. She does look rough, and he notices it. He's like, what in the world? And I think this sort of reemphasizes that at the very least, that real tight friendship, that kinship, possibly that romance that they have, because he's like, I'm going after him. I'm going after, uh, uh, what's his name? Um, whoever it is, <laughs> Robert. Ro- Robert, 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 yeah. <laughs> Robert. Yeah. So I'm going after Robert. And she's like, take a breath. It's implied that she's got some military background because she psyops, uh, she's, she psyops the guy earlier. And then she comes over here and she's like, Joel, you got to take a breath because, he is going to find if he finds out that you're coming after him, he's going to get scared and he's going to get spooked. And then I love the end of that scene. She's like, no, I promised Robert that you wouldn't hurt him, but I would very much like for you to hurt him. <laughs> she's like, she's like, take a breath until it's time to mm-hmm. not take a breath and then just go Joel on him. Okay. Just do that. And I love that. All right. So we're back in the firefly safe house. We meet Marlene who is most definitely in charge and reveals the new plan that she wants to move all the fireflies out of the Boston QZ to go to a radio tower. And I, I'm, I'm assuming we're meant to think that's the same radio tower that Joel mentioned earlier with some random girl <laughs> as her, as her crony sort of allude to. And of course we find out later it's Ellie. This is a great moment with her because it establishes her authority. I think, I think this is right. This is the same actress that voiced Marlene in the game, correct? I believe it is. Yeah. 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 She's really great. There's no question at all that she's in charge. Zero. Yeah. No, she's, <laughs> she's absolutely the one you, uh, you report to. And then outside Joel Waiton is waiting for Tess and he's interrupted by, I think a firefly. There's a great moment of levity here. <laughs> and these are few and far between in a story like this. But I remember you telling me this is one of those great, uh, those great lines from, from the show where this guy comes up and he's like, he starts quoting the, the firefly. He goes, he goes, he just walks up and he's like, it's like one of those things where he comes up and he kind of like leans over against him to the side. And he says, Hey friend, don't worry. I don't want anything. But if you're feeling lost, you tell me to look for the light and I'll break your jaw. 
and then the guy just <laughs> quietly steps away. It's like it's perfect. Yes. Joel doesn't take any crap from anybody. <laughs> he does not. So and it establishes very strongly that yeah. this is the guy. This is who he is. He doesn't he care about your Fedra. He doesn't care about your Fireflies. He didn't care about anything except his goal. Yeah. Joel's goal. <laughs> That's what this game should have been called. Joel's goal. That should be. No, yes. I'm just kidding. Not really. <laughs> <laughs> Tess gets the location for Robert, so they start preparing to go see him. And then back in the safe house, this is where we get introduced fully to Ellie. Marlene gives her her backpack and the knife that uh, becomes very important uh, in the game and later on in the show. This is where Marlene reveals that she put Ellie in Fedra for her own well-being. So Marlene was very uh, instrumental in Ellie's upbringing into the world of Fedra and that um, they have to take her with them because she has a greater purpose. Now, she tells Ellie something that we aren't privy to and we don't find out in this episode. So at this point, I don't know if it's ever, if it's revealed. I I haven't, I don't remember specifically in the season. So I'm back to sort of square one of like, what did she say to her? What's, what's the deal? So I'm excited to see if that gets revealed or if it doesn't to sort of speculate um, what that could have been. Yeah, I liked this conversation that she had with Ellie and with her people because it was, it, there's a lot of foreshadowing that's happening and a lot of like nods to future circumstances that we don't know. They have a specific conversation where Ellie screams at her and she's like, you're just a terrorist. And Marlene's like, terrorist? Was Riley a terrorist? And that's it. And you don't know what that means until you get seven episodes or so down the line, or if you've already played the video game, that name Riley, there's a very intentional meaning to bringing that person up. It gave this conversation a lot stronger meaning for me watching it a second time and didn't even, I hadn't even caught that the first time I watched through it. But then I remembered how that's going to come into play later. So again, another one of those like perfect little details that they, they don't miss anything. In the subway tunnels, Joel and Tess, they make their way through to the location where Robert should be. Joel, after seeing this like infected sculpture on the wall, looks like a little like something out of the Museum of Modern like zombie art. Uh, he's, his, his line is great. He goes, this one's done. <laughs> it's so great. Just very nonchalant. With it is. It. He's so yeah. nonchalant. This whole sequence is also very much almost beat for beat like the video game. Uh, yeah, where they go, they go the underground house. to, yeah. To yeah. get to to get their stuff, we also get our first uh, first visual of a ladder, which is very much a mechanic of the video game. <laughs> a lot of ladders, <laughs> and, and they uh, they traverse that ladder up to a point where they see blood dripping through the wall. Oh my gosh! <laughs> Please don't let anybody be back there about ready to eat your face or something. That's what was going through my head. I love that Tess just has no like. She's like, it's cool. So she's like pushes the door thing open and come to find out there are all of Robert's dead, dead, like cronies, including him sitting in this, uh, in this room, there's the battery that he's tried to sell not once, but twice after stealing it from, from her. This is the Firefly safe house that they've kind of bumped into. So I thought that was kind of cool. Nice little reveal that it's not a different place entirely that, there's actually a connection between Joel and Marlene who is injured because they've had a kind of a firefight with Robert and, and his men. This is also where Ellie 
tries to attack Joel and fails. This is such a great moment, the way he that he knocks the knife out of her hand and then she attempts to grab it and he just puts his foot on it. And knowing what I know about Joel and Ellie, I'm like, that's a perfect way to get your relationship started right there. <laughs> yes, it is. From here, at this point, Marlene is like, okay, we need to figure something out. There's a great kind of establishing shot between uh, Joel, Ellie, Marlene's people, and Tess, where they're all kind of pointing guns at each other, kind of like something from Fast and the Furious or some kind of like crime movie where like nobody's got the upper hand at this point. We find out that Marlene knows Tommy, and she proposes that they take Ellie to the old state house where there are some fireflies. And after some deliberation, Joel and Tess reluctantly agree. They say, hey, we'll take her, but we need a truck and a battery, and you're going to give us whatever we ask for. And so that kind of sets us off into the last probably 10 or 15 minutes of the show. So we have this sort of tumultuous relationship that starts between Joel and Ellie. Again, there's like this look Marlene gives Ellie of like, hey, you're important. Don't die out there, right? (laughs) So it's really great. But yet it also establishes that she's cargo. Absolutely, yeah. Joel sees her as nothing more than an annoyance, that he does not want to deal with. He does not want to be responsible for. He is doing his best to show that she's not even like really a human to him. She just is a means to getting what he wants. Absolutely. So they take off. They go to his apartment. Uh, Tess and Joel discuss the plan while Ellie waits inside. They kind of throw her in there and shut the door. <laughs> and She starts looking around and finds the radio with the booklet of number one hits from Billboard along with these codes inside. And so Ellie's not stupid. She cracks the code. She says, The radio's a smuggling code, right? 60s song, they don't have anything new. 70s, they got new stuff. What's 80s? Joel's like so like annoyed. He's like, shut up. <laughs> and so he lays yeah. down on the couch. <laughs> this is another video game moment. They go to this. I think in the game, it's just an, a safe house. It's not his apartment necessarily, but... He crashes on the couch, and she's like, What are you doing? Killing time. Well, what am I supposed to do? I'm sure you'll figure that out. She thumbs through, I guess she starts thumbing through the uh, that billboard. That's a, It's a thick book. Like, that's a lot of number ones. <laughs> it's really thick. Yeah, yeah, it's called the billboard number one hits, but yeah, it's, it's I remember those. I remember those existing, almost like a, like a Guinness Book of World Records type situation. Yeah. After that, later on, he wakes up, and they sort start sort of having a little bit of small talk. I mean, it's nothing connectable by any means. She asks some questions. He asks some questions. They're interrupted by Tess, who says, hey, it's time to go. But this is really cool. <laughs> I love when she says, Oh, the radio came on when you were sleeping. What? What was the song? They kept saying, like, like wake me up before you go-go. Oh, shit. Gotcha. 80s means trouble. Code broken. Yeah, it's, it's brilliant. She's It really shows how smart she is. Yeah, it's so good. So they take off. It's raining, much like it is in the video game. We then transition to outside. Fedra is doing its nightly sweep. This is such a great like little mantra that they're kind of announcing as they go through the streets. It's got a little catchy ring to it. <laughs> Pretty much every dystopian city and world has some sort of 
something like that. You know, mm-hmm. it feels like it's very common for an yeah. authoritarian government to to try and control with like a slogan like that. Yeah. Yeah. So Tess, Joel, and Ellie make it outside the wall, uh, to which I don't think Ellie's ever been outside the wall. So it's a new thing for her. They traverse through various obstacles, much like in the video game. It's so cool. And then they get met by a Fedra agent. And not just any Fedra agent. It's the guy that got the pills from Joel. He's like, you should have stayed inside. And we think that they're about to get arrested and, and whatnot. He scans all three of them. To which Ellie's like, no, you're not going to scan me, jerk. And she stabs him, like, I think in the leg or something like that. Joel proceeds to beat the living crap out of the guy. So this scene is really interesting because I think it's meant to parallel the moment with Sarah where it is. Obviously, we see that flashback. He's thinking about it. And then instead of just hesitating, he goes right after the dude. And the reaction, I think, is so poignant because... Ellie's reaction and Sarah's reaction are almost parallel. Like, it's just like, who is this guy? But this is what I was pointing out where Sarah is. Oh my gosh. Did you kill him? Ellie's look is one of wonder and almost excitement. She is almost smiling. Like her eyes are open wide with a sort of surprised awe it's it's different than sarah sarah is true, i think true somewhat terrified that her dad just did this ellie is like this dude just beat the living crap out of this guy for me is kind mm-hmm. of what i got out of her reaction yeah. to that obviously both of them are reacting to the fact of oh my gosh joel has this capacity for violence that is maybe unexpected <laughs> based on his personality yeah. so far. I also really love, by the way, just that's not a game thing because you don't meet the specific soldier. All that, that whole element of knowing the soldier adds something to this. So it's again, mm-hmm. it's not just some random character that you're shooting in the game or whatever. Like he knows this guy. He has been dealing drugs to this guy repeatedly over the course of however many years or however many months. And now he has to take this action against someone he knows in order to protect himself, protect his own. So it's yeah. more powerful that way. Absolutely. Absolutely. Personalization is always a, a good thing to add to moments like this. So after this guy's dead, Tess sees the, I guess, the infection indicator, and it's revealed that Ellie's infected. And she's like, no, I'm not. So she shows off the wound on her arm, the bite or whatever. And she says, this is like a week old. When in reality, she should already be dead. Uh, because if you look at the notification inside at the <laughs> at the Fedra station, anything on the arms and legs usually is like a two to three day infection uh, to death, to become, to turning into one of the infected. So yeah, that was a big reveal in the game. And that was a jaw drop moment for me, both in the game and then again, seeing that here, because that adds a level of mystery. Like what is it about Ellie? She's special. And what does this mean for her and for Joel and for Tess and what we see later? So that's kind of where the episode leaves us. There's just one moment at the end as they're taken off to the next episode, the apartment radio comes back on. It's playing. I think it's Depeche Mode. Is that is that the? Oh, I was going to bring this up. I didn't know if you were going to note this or not. I, sh- I shouldn't have doubted you. Yeah, it's Never Let Me Down uh, from okay. 1987. It is Depeche Mode and yeah. indicates that they may be headed to trouble. Here comes trouble, for sure. The music gets louder. There's this great kind of wide shot of a broken Boston. And then at the very end, 
there's a little sound that kind of finishes off the episode. And I was like, I recognize that. (laughs) That's the end of the first episode. And that left me completely wanting to watch the next week. So that that wraps up that episode. And uh, any final thoughts before we finish this one? I thought it was one of the best series premieres that I've ever seen. It, It was able, for the level of hype and the level of importance I hold for this property, it was going to be really, really tough to meet my expectations. And I felt like it probably exceeded them. Yeah. Um, I just thought it was pitch perfect start to this. And it really put me at ease, honestly, going into the whole rest of the series and willing to go for the ride with them because it, it, it gave me a sense of trust in what Craig working with Neil, the creator of the video game, uh, were able to kind of do through this adaptation. So yeah, it was, it was really spectacular. Cool, man. Yeah, I, I echo all that and don't need to say anything else other than that's going to wrap up this episode of an original series. Coming up next, we have episode two entitled simply Infected. So when I saw that title reveal, I was like, I am ready. I'm absolutely ready. And I'm excited to talk to you about it next time. Thank you for tuning in and joining our conversation. I'm Patch, he's Aaron, and we are out of here.